The Work of Vital Religion in the Soul by Samuel Rundle Chapter 2 The Worship Ordained of God Under the Christian Dispensation In the conversation which our Lord condescended to hold with the woman of Samaria, he declared, The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 23 and 24. On other occasions, he said, No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6, and without me you can do nothing, John 15, 5. These declarations plainly indicate that the worship of God under the Christian dispensation is of a spiritual character and must be offered in truth, that we cannot come unto the Father and offer unto him this true worship, but by Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, his assistance is communicated to us by the quickening influence of his Holy Spirit, without which the important duty of worship cannot be acceptably performed. This appears to have been the sentiment of the Apostle Paul, for he declares that no one can say or acknowledge that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Hence it is apparent that all worship having a different origin is not the true worship of God, but is rather that which the Apostle designates as will worship, Colossians 2.23. Editor's Note here, Rundle is quoting the King James Version translation of Colossians 2.23, which, although a very accurate rendering of the underlying Greek word, is an unfamiliar phrase to most modern Christians. More contemporary versions usually translate the same word as self-imposed worship or self-made religion. Returning to text. It is so termed because it is merely the act of self, the mere product of the will and wisdom of man whether or not it be adorned with eloquence of speech or accompanied with vocal or instrumental music. Even if this worship is supported by human authority and sanctioned by it as orthodox, still the declaration of Jesus Christ is applicable unto it. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15.9 It may be said of merely nominal Christians in the present day that although in many instances thoughtlessness respecting religion is the prominent feature of their character, yet, in many other cases, they are zealous in supporting the creeds of the religious communities to which they are individually attached. But, notwithstanding their zeal, these refuse to submit to the convictions of the Spirit of Christ. They will not come to his baptism, They refuse to walk in the path of self-denial, and the consequence is that their hearts are not cleansed, the chaff is not burnt up, they remain carnally minded. Now, while they continue in this state of resistance against the Spirit of Christ, there is cause for them to fear that the worship which they offer to Almighty God is not more acceptable in His sight than was that of the Pharisees formerly. The Pharisees rejected Christ in his outward or personal appearance. The merely nominal Christians above described reject Christ in his inward or spiritual appearance in their hearts. Like the Pharisees, 
they think they have eternal life in the scriptures, and like them also, they will not come to Christ that they might have life. See John 5, 39 and 40. But it is much to be lamented that the adversary of mankind so much prevails, not only in diverting the merely nominal Christian from even entering on the true spiritual course, but also in impeding the progress of many serious persons who have begun to walk in it, even those who, loving the Lord Jesus in a good degree of sincerity, have so far followed his holy guidance as to be redeemed from many evil customs and vanities of the world. Yet these, not patiently and humbly submitting to the operation of that power by which old things are made to pass away, and all things to become new, and all things to be of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, these find their growth in the divine life obstructed. Their strong attachment to human prescriptions relative to forms of worship and ceremonial observances prevents them from attaining that clearness of spiritual discernment into which they would have been introduced if, in childlike simplicity, they had been passive in the Lord's hand like clay in the hand of the potter. In this state of defective submission to the divine will, they are not in a capacity duly to appreciate the benefits resulting from a practical faith in the name of the Son of God. Their views and dependence, being outwardly directed, are limited to a merely literal explanation of this holy name. They do not therefore clearly perceive the necessity of seeking and waiting for divine influence to effect the needful preparation of heart before him, previous to the offering of their prayers at the throne of grace. And if, in their assemblies for divine worship, they are not gathered together in the name of Christ, can it be expected that he will be in the midst of them? See Matthew 18.20 The necessity of the influence of the Spirit of Christ in this solemn engagement of worship is fully acknowledged by the Apostle Paul. For, notwithstanding his extraordinary gifts and large experience in the ministry of the gospel, he declares respecting himself and his fellow believers, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Romans 8.26 That is, as a late writer observes, with fervent internal aspirations, the sensible effect of that powerful cause, even the silent operation of the Spirit of Truth, showing unto man from time to time his real condition, and teaching him directly both what to pray for and how to pray aright. By him, Jesus Christ, let us then worship and serve God in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Romans 7, 6 believing in his name, even in that name which God has exalted above every name, that at or in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. If the true bowing at the name of Jesus were understood and witnessed in our hearts, were we so humbled by his power as to submit to his government, 
however contrary to our former views and practices, the performance of our religious as well as of our moral duties, being thereby brought under his holy influence and control, then we would be Christians indeed. We would be able in truth to address Jesus Christ as our Lord, his holy light being our leader, and his holy will made known to us thereby, being done in and by us in all things. Thus would the name of Jesus be exalted above every other name to the glory of God the Father. In the opening of this chapter, reference was made to those merely nominal Christians who, rejecting the admonitions of the light of Christ, refuse to enter the path of self-denial and are consequently disqualified, while they persist in their disobedience, for the performance of that worship which is in spirit and in truth. In pursuing this subject, it is my design to show the necessity not only of entering in at the narrow gate, but also of continuing to walk in the narrow path, bearing the cross daily and following Christ, so that the Christian traveler may be preserved from taking up a rest in his own works, trusting in a form of godliness without its life and power. May a sense of this danger deeply impress the minds of such religiously disposed persons as have been addressed in the several preceding paragraphs of this chapter. In order to place the subject before them in a clear point of view, may they earnestly give attention to these next observations founded principally on the following precept of our Redeemer. He whom, let us ever remember, our Heavenly Father has commanded us to hear. If any man will come after me, in other words, if any man will be a Christian indeed, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 The effects which result from faithfully persevering in this course, which, we must acknowledge, our Savior himself has pointed out to us, are briefly described by the Apostle Paul in this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 This eminent minister of Christ not only witnessed the mortification of the flesh in his own person, but also enforced it on those among whom he labored in the following emphatic language. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts, or strives, against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. Galatians 5:16 and 17 And in order to convince us that walking in the Spirit and bearing the daily cross are absolutely necessary to our becoming true Christians, he declares, Those who are Christ's, have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. Galatians 5.24 This observation of the Apostle respecting the conflict which takes place between the spirit and the flesh may be considered applicable to all mankind, however diversified as to religious profession. Now, whichever of these, the spirit or the flesh, we join with and obey, by this we are influenced and governed. You are that one servant whom you obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience 
unto righteousness. Romans 6.16 The Spirit prompts us to deny self, to crucify the flesh by taking up our cross daily, and to follow Christ. Its purifying effects in our hearts being demonstrated by our living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2.11 And if this divine instructor in its further manifestations in our hearts is obeyed through the ability which it imparts, it will enable us to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But the tempter, through the medium of the flesh, strives in various ways to obstruct and prevent these most desirable results. When his efforts are ineffectual to draw awakened minds back again into their former habits of gross irreligion and sin, he then employs a more insidious snare by assuming a religious character and making a superficial show of piety and devotion while still opposing the Holy Spirit. This opposition to the Spirit is pursued by means of deceptive insinuations calculated to prevent its life-giving admonitions from being listened to and obeyed. In particular, the enemy strives to excite and to foster in the minds of many professed Christians an aversion to the duty of watching Ephesians 6.18, Mark 13.37, Matthew 14.38, Colossians 4.2, which appears to include a patient waiting for the Lord in the exercise of faith and love. See Hosea 12.6, Isaiah 40.31, Psalm 41. This duty is mercifully designed to be the means by which in stillness weak and feeble and liable to be misled as we all are of ourselves. The sincere in heart may hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and may receive from him instruction to perceive and strength to avoid temptation, as well as ability to offer up their prayers in his holy name to their Heavenly Father. But the enemy, through the carnal mind, suggests doubts as to whether this duty of watching be really obligatory. In order to effectually divert the professors of religion from the practice of it, he prompts them to place their dependence on their own wisdom and activity, rather than to submit to so self-denying an exercise of mind. In all cases in which these insinuations are embraced and followed, the secret warnings of the Spirit of Christ become gradually disregarded. Darkness then ensues, and the great work of purifying the heart is obstructed. They seek, and soon find, a way to walk in that is more agreeable to the natural will and the pride of the human heart than that in which the denial of self and patient bearing of the daily cross are required. Their faith, standing not in the power of God, but in the wisdom of men, 1 Corinthians 2.5, they are frequently running after this or the other eloquent minister, not regarding the declaration of Christ that the kingdom of God is within you, nor seeking the manifestation of this kingdom and the righteousness of God according to his command, Matthew 6.33. As they go on in this course, they become, in very many instances, strongly attached to forms and ceremonies set up and commanded by human wisdom and authority, and thus they are led into the practice of will worship. Alas! 
How greatly is the brightness of genuine Christianity obscured in the present day among very many professors of it, through their not duly watching against and avoiding the influence and efforts of the carnal mind in every form under which it opposes and strives against the Spirit of Christ. They will probably admit that watchfulness is required as a preservative from violating the precepts of morality in their general conduct and conversation, but they appear not to be sufficiently aware that it is especially necessary in regard to the worship which they offer to the Almighty God. For in this solemn engagement, as far as they are led by the activity of self or the flesh, so far are their minds disqualified for the reception of the life-giving influence of the Spirit of Christ, through which alone the acceptable worship, which is in spirit and in truth, can be offered. So that, however ardent their zeal may be in devotional exercises, and however delightful the passions it excites, yet, if the influence by which they act in their worship is not that of the Spirit of Christ, the conclusion seems inevitable that it proceeds from self or the carnal mind. How needful, then, is it for professed Christians of every denomination, under a conviction of the great danger a mistake in this important concern would mean for them, to lay open their hearts in all humility and sincerity to the discriminating ray of the light of Christ, to that standard to which the Apostle directs our attention. All things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever does make manifest is light. Ephesians 5.13 So that, under its direction, they may be enabled to form a true judgment as to which influence has obtained the government in their minds. The sad consequences of continuing to act under the influence of that which opposes the Spirit of Christ may be inferred from these words of the same Apostle. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh they in whom the carnal mind predominates, cannot please God. Romans 8, 6-8 To which it may be added that however highly they may characterize their religious attainments, yet while they remain in this state, they are incapable of participating in that fellowship which is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 3 in returning to the description which the Apostle gives of his own experience already quoted, let us take into view what he says in another place on the same important subject. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Romans 6, 3-6 By thus conforming to the doctrine of his Lord and bearing the daily cross, and by submitting to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle was enabled to say, 
I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20 May all professed Christians be stimulated and encouraged to press forward to the attainment of this state according to the measure of divine light or grace dispensed to them. Footnote Let it not be supposed that the high privileges which the Christian dispensation holds out to mankind do not include the attainment of this state. Our Lord Jesus Christ prayed to the Father, not only on behalf of his immediate followers, but for those also who would believe in him through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us, I in them, and you in me, etc. Concluding his supplication, which should be read with reverence and awe, in these words, I have declared unto them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. John 17, 20, 21, 23, and 26. Returning to text. May they be so humbled by the power of God as to become willing to deny self, the flesh, or the carnal mind. In other words, to put off the old man with his deeds, Colossians 3.9. Not only his grossly corrupt and sinful practices, but also his acts of devotion, his praying and singing, and, in respect to ministry, his preaching too. Then will they be enabled, by following Christ in the regeneration, Matthew 19.28, to put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4.24 They will become true worshipers, like the believers formerly, worshiping God in the Spirit, rejoicing in Christ Jesus, and having no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3 The scriptures declare that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans 8.14 And that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with. 1 Corinthians 12.7 How desirable, how indispensable then is it that all, and especially those who call themselves ministers of Christ, should follow the putting forth and leadings of His Spirit in their own minds. The teaching of the Spirit of Christ is always in accordance with his doctrines and precepts which are presented to us in the Scriptures. Therefore, those who are in office as ministers of Christ, if they be truly such and be indeed led by his Spirit, will manifest, not only in their conduct and conversation, but also in their ministry, a faithful adherence to that portion of his doctrine already referred to, wherein he urges the necessity of denying self, taking up the daily cross, and following him. But if any who undertake the office of a Christian minister show in their general behavior a disposition to evade the denial of self, to shrink from bearing the cross and from putting off the old man with his deeds, if, instead of following the Spirit of Christ in their ministry, they follow the suggestions of their own fleshly wisdom, 
teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, our Lord's own declaration seems to authorize the conclusion that their worship is in vain. And when any of those who decline the use of the modes and forms of worship prescribed by human authority and profess to depend on the direction of the Spirit of Truth, do not wait in humility of mind for its life-giving influence, but in their self-will and under the impulse of creaturely zeal undertake to preach or to pray in their public assemblies. These performances, like the offering of strange fire under the Mosaic dispensation, Leviticus 10.1, may be considered to be in a particular manner offensive in the divine sight. In all these cases, unless they submit to that divine word, which is said to be like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, Jeremiah 23.29, and unless by its effectual operation they are brought to the experience of true humiliation and contrition, and through repentance witness purification of heart from pride and exaltation of self, they are in danger of becoming like unto some formerly, of whom we read that they shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, neither going in themselves nor permitting them that are entering to go in. Matthew 23.13 If they persist in this course, disregarding the convictions of the Spirit of Christ, which, from the time when they began to reject its admonitions in their own consciences, it may be presumed has not failed at seasons still to reprove them, they will become more and more laden with iniquity, Isaiah 1.4. And by thus continuing to transgress the law written on the table of the heart, there will be much ground for them to fear, however successful they may esteem their ministerial labors, that ultimately their portion will be with those concerning whom our Holy Redeemer has declared. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? or preached, in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Matthew seven twenty two and 23. Chapter 3. Baptism, Worship, and Partaking of the Flesh and Blood. The qualifications required for admission into the Church of Christ do not include the observation of any of the types, ceremonies, and carnal ordinances of the Mosaic Dispensation, or of that of John the Baptist, which were fulfilled and abrogated by the Son of God in his personal appearance and death on the cross. But the Apostle Paul plainly declares that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his, Romans 8.9. That is, if any man has not accepted the Spirit of Christ for his teacher, his baptizer, and his sanctifier, but on the contrary, in respect to these offices, has disregarded and rejected him, this man is not Christ's. Whatever may be his profession or performances as to religion, whether he is a member of the established church or a dissenter from it, he is not a member of the spiritual body or church of which Christ is the head. For according to the doctrine of the same apostle, the baptism by which believers are introduced into this church is the baptism of the Spirit, 
1 Corinthians 12.13. Consequently, it is not that of water, applied either by sprinkling or immersion. The baptism of the Spirit is an inward work, and it should never be forgotten that it is not the body, but the soul of man that is the subject of it. John the Baptist makes a very clear distinction between his baptism with water and the baptism of Christ. I indeed, said he, baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to carry. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Matthew 3.11 And a similar and equally clear description of the two baptisms is given by our Lord himself, Acts 1.5. This baptism with the Holy Spirit is that which has already been referred to in the first chapter of this book. It is the work of the Spirit of Christ operating in the soul of man, principally directly, but sometimes also instrumentally by the ministry of the gospel. This baptizing ministry appears to have been instituted by Jesus Christ himself, though we do not find that he gave any commission to his disciples to baptize with water, or that he so baptized anyone himself. We read that after his resurrection, he declared to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth, adding, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name, the divine life and power, of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen and 19. Of this baptizing ministry, we have an instance in the account which the Apostle Peter gives of his visit to the family of Cornelius. As I began to speak, he said, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. To this, the apostle added, God gave them the same gift as he gave us. Acts eleven fifteen through 17 Thus, the gift of the Holy Spirit appears to have accompanied the preaching of Peter and was communicated independently of water baptism. However, this apostle was not then fully weaned from an attachment to this figurative ordinance, for it appears that in this case of early Gentile conversion, he directed it to be administered to those who had previously received the Holy Spirit, Acts 10:47 and 48. Although under a doubt, which the inquiry, can any man forbid water, seems to imply. In process of time, however, this eminent apostle's views on the subject of baptism appear to have been enlarged, for we find that in his general epistle, describing the baptism by which believers are now saved, he declares that it is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, which is the proper effect of baptism or washing in water, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.21 now, this is a description of the effect of Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire, by which a death unto sin and a new birth unto righteousness, through faith in that divine power by which Christ rose from the dead, are witnessed. And thus the answer or testimony of a good conscience is produced.
The Apostle Paul's language on this subject is also very instructive. Having referred to the mystery which has been hid from ages and generations, but now is made manifest to the saints, which, he says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. He then proceeds, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. Colossians 1, 26-28, and Colossians 2, 6, 10, and 12. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4. This is that one baptism of which the Apostle speaks. Ephesians 4, 4 and 5. There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And describing the agent in this important work, whether commenced through outward preaching or not, he declares, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, or church of Christ and have been all made to drink into one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.13 The terms water and fire are used in the New Testament in reference to the baptism of Christ and to the new birth, which is the effect of this baptism. It is said of Christ, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Matthew 3.11 Again we read, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 5. But these terms in the text quoted are not to be understood literally, but figuratively. As the property of water is to cleanse, and that of fire to refine, so the baptism of Christ cleanses and refines the soul which submits to it from the stains and dross of sin. During the apostolic age, the baptism of Christ, when administered through the preaching of the gospel, was in many instances accompanied by miraculous gifts. Yet we have no ground to conclude now, in the absence of such gifts, that a measure of the same baptizing influence of the Spirit does not still accompany the ministry of those whom he calls, qualifies, and employs in his service, and who act therein only under his ministration and guidance, in a humble dependence on his wisdom, life, and power. Through the gracious continuance of divine mercy and love, this influence is still witnessed in a greater or lesser degree when the word, thus preached, is mixed with faith in those who hear it. Hebrews 4.2 Some of the advocates of water baptism lay much stress on those instances which are recorded in the New Testament in which some of the apostles appear to have used, or to have directed the use of, this typical ordinance. But when it is considered that some of the apostles for a while after the crucifixion and ascension of our Holy Redeemer were in the practice not only of water baptism, but also of some other typical ordinances, 
including circumcision, there appears no valid reason why their practice with respect to water baptism should be considered more obligatory on the Christian church at the present day than their practice with respect to circumcision and some other Mosaic rites. On a view of the whole matter, there appears sufficient ground for the conclusion that it was permitted by divine wisdom that the typical ordinances of the preceding dispensations of Moses and of John, although effectively abrogated by the death of Christ on the cross, should not, in the infantile state of the church, be laid aside suddenly, but rather gradually, as the minds of the Christian converts became capable of more clearly comprehending the spiritual character of the Christian dispensation. To all those whose minds are so far enlightened as to see clearly that something more than the mere name or outward profession of Christianity is absolutely necessary, it is therefore earnestly recommended that, while seeking to become in reality members of the Church of Christ and sheep of His fold, they do not endeavor to climb up through the ways which human wisdom may uphold by a return to the use of any of the types or ordinances of former dispensations which were fulfilled and abrogated by the coming and death of Christ, as the Scripture declares. Hebrews 9, 8-11, Colossians 2, 14-17 For Christ is the door of the true sheepfold, or church, John ten nine, and they who become members of it must enter in by faith in Him, and by submission to the baptism of his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.13 They who thus become members of the true Church of Christ are permitted to witness its blessed privileges. They partake of that divine food which he describes as his flesh and blood. And this food is so necessary for their preservation and growth in true religion that he declared, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6.53 Some who heard him speak these words thought then, as many professed Christians appear to think in the present day, that this declaration should be understood as relating to the flesh and blood of his outward or material body. Our Lord, however, graciously condescended to correct this mistake. May every one who has adopted this or any other outward signification of the words of Christ now under notice very seriously reflect upon and accept the explanation which he gave on this highly important subject. After it had been queried, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This was his reply. It is the spirit that quickens. Surely then, if it is the spirit that quickens or gives life, it should be concluded that it was the partaking of the quickening, life-giving influences of his Holy Spirit diffused in the soul, he dwelling in us and we in him, verse 56, which he intended to represent by the phrases eating his flesh and drinking his blood, without which we have no life in us. And, as it were, in order to place this important point beyond the risk of mistake or doubt, after he had said, It is the spirit that quickens, he immediately added, The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. 
John 6.63. The doctrine of the Apostle Paul on this very important subject is in perfect unison with that of his divine master. In his epistle to the Corinthians, he declares that the Spirit gives life, 2 Corinthians 3.6. It also appears from his first epistle to the same church that long before the incarnation of Christ, some of the Israelites partook of that spiritual food and drink which are derived from him. For the apostle declares that they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. If the followers of Jesus Christ could have been permitted to eat the flesh of his material body, it is evident from his own words that it would have profited them nothing. It was the life-giving influence of his Holy Spirit by which alone those who believed on him in that day were made alive and preserved alive unto God. Romans 6.11 And in the present day, the same divine influence produces similar effects in the souls of all those who, believing in the light, life, and power of Christ, receive him for their teacher, savior, priest, and king, believing also, if they have access to the Holy Scriptures, all that those sacred records declare concerning the sufferings and death of Christ and the benefits resulting therefrom to mankind. These partake of the true supper of the Lord, as it is written, Behold, I stand at the door of the heart and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20 This divine food is essentially the same as that which our Holy Redeemer described under other figurative terms, as the bread which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. John 6.33 and as the living water, which in those who drink of it, should be as a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John 4.10 and 14. Those who, through divine grace, witness an advancement in the work of regeneration, should ever gratefully acknowledge this communication of spiritual food to their souls amidst the manifold mercies of which they partake. Like the sap that enables the branches which abide in the vine to bring forth fruit, so the quickening, life-giving influence of the Spirit of Christ, who is the true vine, John 15.1, enables those who abide as branches in him to bring forth the fruits of the Spirit, which are in all goodness and righteousness and truth, Ephesians 5.9. For under his holy influence, they are incited and strengthened from day to day to maintain, even in their temporal concerns, a strict adherence to justice, truth, and equity, doing unto others as they would that others should do unto them. As their growth in the divine life progresses, their words and actions become leavened by Christian purity, sincerity, humility, and love. They exemplify not only in their own families, but amongst all with whom they associate, the powerful efficacy of that holy name in which they have believed, 
and into which they have been baptized. If we seriously remember the solemn declarations of our Lord Jesus Christ, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. John 6:53 and 56. And if we keep in view the clear explanation which he condescended to give of these words, the conclusion must surely be admitted on the highest authority that whatever may be our religious profession, however largely our minds may be furnished with the literal knowledge of the doctrines and precepts of the Holy Scriptures, or our memories charged with the recorded experience of good men of ancient and modern times, and however highly we may think of ourselves or be esteemed by others on this or any other account, yet, if we do not partake of the quickening influences of the Spirit of Christ, we have no life in us. We do not dwell in him, nor he in us. And consequently, we are in a state of spiritual darkness and death. A conviction of the vast importance of this subject induces the writer, under what he trusts is a degree of the constraining love of Christ, to press it upon the close attention of the Society of Friends, with whom he is connected in religious profession, as well as upon Christians of every other denomination. Footnote. The writer wishes to state that the Society of Friends is not responsible for anything contained in these pages. Editor's Note. The fact that Samuel Rundle felt compelled to add the previous footnote is a sad testament to the declension of the Society of Friends during his day. Anyone familiar with the principles and writings of the early Quakers can testify that the entirety of this publication is in perfect agreement with them. However, by the early 1800s, there was an alarming departure from these first principles and a return to much of what early friends came out from and testified against. Many of the most influential Quakers of Rundle's day were leaning much upon the letter of the scripture, natural learning, and a faith in the historical appearing and death of Christ, without insisting also upon the heart's submission to his purifying inward baptism. Quakers of this description had so far gained the ascendancy in England by the 1830s that they refused to publish this book. At length, Samuel Rundell, with the encouragement and approbation of many others, published it on his own, independently of the Society of Friends. Returning to text. Having endeavored in the preceding pages to point out the means whereby the soul, through the obedience of faith, may attain to a capacity of partaking of this divine food, and to show the necessity and benefits thereof, it may be proper in the next place to make some further observations with respect to its communication and effects. The great head of the church dispenses this heavenly sustenance to the living members of his body in their religious assemblies when they are gathered in a state of solemn silence and reverent waiting before him. Sometimes this is through the instrument of an individual engaged in the ministry of the gospel, and at other times by the immediate effusion of his Holy Spirit upon their minds. They are also permitted to enjoy this privilege from time to time in seasons of private retirement, and even day by day while engaged in their lawful occupations, if, 
feeling the lack of the enlivening influence of the Spirit of Christ, they humbly seek it. It is preeminently for this divine nourishment, for this bread that comes down from heaven, that our blessed Savior teaches us to pray to our Heavenly Father, Give us this day our daily bread. When favored in their public assemblies to witness the gracious promises fulfilled that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, Isaiah 40.31, and that where even two or three are gathered together in his name, there he who is a quickening spirit, 1 Corinthians 15.45, even the Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst of them, Matthew 18.20. They can thankfully acknowledge that although the baptizing ministry of the gospel is a great blessing to the Church of Christ and should be received with feelings of gratitude to the source of all good, yet it is a higher privilege to be fed directly by himself, the holy head of the Church and bishop of souls, than through the instrumentality of their fellow members. The solemn declaration of our Holy Redeemer to the woman of Samaria on the subject of worship should indeed make a deep and awful impression upon the minds of all who profess to prostrate themselves before the Most High. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And again he said, No man comes unto the Father but by me, and Without me you can do nothing. How needful then must it be, in order to perform this divine worship, that the mind be brought into a state of entire humiliation, bowed down under a true sense of its great weakness, of its many needs and utter unworthiness, accompanied with a conviction of the perfect purity of that almighty being whose sacred presence is unapproachable, except through our holy mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps it may be said that there is no other engagement in which the religiously exercised mind is so fully penetrated by these feelings as in that of silent waiting upon God in assemblies for public worship. But although Christ is always in some measure present with those who, through the baptism of his Holy Spirit, are members of his church, yet... According to the experience of many who are of this description, he is frequently pleased to withhold from them for a season, in their religious assemblies as well as at other times, that increased communication of his power and life which is needful to qualify them for the performance of the solemn act of divine worship. Yes, for a wise and gracious purpose, he often permits them to feel how weak they are of themselves and how utterly insufficient by their own strength they are to resist the efforts of their soul's adversary. This adversary, by exciting the natural propensity to be occupied with earthly things, or by presenting to the imagination creaturely ideas relative to worship or doctrine, often endeavors to draw off their minds from that denial of self, that subjugation of their own will and wisdom, which are required in order to wait patiently upon God in the exercise of faith and love. But although he, the good shepherd and bishop of souls, 1 Peter 2.25, may permit those humble believers in him to be thus tried and proved, yet he does not forsake them. In his own time, for which they reverently wait with fervent desire, 
the enlivening, purifying influence of his Holy Spirit imparts fresh vigor to their souls. Thus strengthened, they surmount those impediments, of whatever kind, which had obstructed their access to the throne of grace, and they are enabled to draw near in full assurance of faith. Hebrews 10.22 The worship thus offered in religious assemblies, whether it be accompanied with vocal ministry, prayer, or praise, offered in obedience to the will of the great head of the church, directly communicated to such of its members as he may see fit to employ in his service, or whether in obedience to the same holy will it wholly consists in silent aspirations arising from quickened souls in a state of reverent prostration before the throne of grace. In either case, this worship does not fail to meet the divine acceptance. Footnote. It must not be supposed that all who are in the practice of sitting in silence in assemblies for public worship are benefited in the manner above described. It is only the awakened mind, the mind in which the work of regeneration is in some degree begun, that is capable of truly waiting upon God in silence under an exercise of faith and love towards him. Yet, there is ground to believe that in numerous instances, Individuals who have previously shown little or no concern about their soul's salvation, having entered a silent religious assembly, some of them probably by mere curiosity, have been awakened, and their minds greatly contrited by the divine power, although not a word has been spoken. And this visitation of the love of the Redeemer has proved the beginning of the effectual working of His grace in their souls. Returning to text. Although many individuals in whom the work of regeneration has been begun and who are in the practice of waiting upon God in assemblies for public worship may not always receive such a supply of spiritual food as the apprehension of their own need leads them to expect, yet these should not be discouraged. May they properly consider that the Lord knows better than they do what is best for them. He knows what will conduce to the progress of that great work which he has begun in their souls. For a wise and benign purpose, he introduces his children into a state of poverty of spirit, the tendency of this discipline being to increase their faith and to establish them more firmly on himself, the sure foundation, the rock of ages. Therefore, you who hunger and thirst for the bread and water of life, be not dismayed on account of the apparent smallness of the portion sometimes, even frequently, dispensed unto you. Should it be no more, figuratively speaking, than a crumb of this bread or a drop of living water, yet, if received with thankfulness, it will be found sufficient for the present need, sufficient to strengthen you still to trust in the Lord, still to wait upon Him in faith and with a lively hope in His goodness and mercy. And whenever these effects are witnessed, they should be considered as an evidence that, through the gracious regard of your heavenly Father, a portion of divine aid and sustenance has been dispensed unto you. The revival of this faith and hope, when felt after much mental labor and conflict, whether in religious assemblies or in private retirement, how precious is it to the tribulated soul! The Lord's holy name be praised for all his mercies partaken of by those who are engaged, although frequently under a feeling of many discouragements and infirmities, 
to seek for ability to worship him in spirit and in truth.